0: are now going to have our Bible reading for the evening, um, and today we're looking at Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. No one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Kristen. My name is Phil. I'm the associate minister here. It's lovely to have you with us, in particular, if you're here for the first time. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at this passage together for the next few minutes. Our Father God, we pray that you would give us the humility to listen to your word. We pray that you would help us to long more to understand it than to judge it. And we pray this, that we might live fruitful and rich and joyous lives, obeying your word and knowing the fulfillment of living in your way. Amen. What does God look like? Behold. (laughs) That's enough. That's more than enough. Enough, enough, enough. Uh, (laughs) Marriage according to the Holy Spirit in Ephesians five, is not ultimately about finding fulfillment, an answer to loneliness and the longing for love that we all have, it's not ultimately about that. Ultimately, marriage is to depict for us the relationship of Jesus Christ and his church. It's a picture of God loving his people. That's what marriage is. Now I'm aware as we consider marriage tonight, there are likely to be a number of different feelings in the room. I guess some of us are probably right now wishing we hadn't bothered to come. Uh, either our marriage or our longings for marriage or our memories of marriage are just so painful that actually we would rather not spend the next 25 minutes thinking it through again. After I've been praying if that is you I've been praying for you this week that uh, to your surprise what the Holy Spirit says through Ephesians 5 might be of rich comfort. And might actually teach you things about the Lord Jesus that make you glad you were here. I guess others of us uh, might just think, look, it's irrelevant. Um, I'm single um, and marriage is not on the cards in the, in the near future. Well, it's very important for you too. It's important for all of us because we'll learn what marriage is and isn't. And that changes the way we think about it, whether we hope for it, how much we long for it. It's not the ultimate answer to your longings and the ultimate answer to loneliness. Understanding what marriage is is important for those who aren't married as for those who are. It'll also, of course, help us as we seek to provide advice and as we pray for for our friends who are married. Uh, But more than that, actually, we're not just going to be learning about marriage. As we've already seen from the reading, ultimately marriage is a picture of the Lord Jesus relating to the church. And ultimately, actually, what this passage is about is about Christ. And all of us, all of us need a bigger, richer, truer picture of him. And that is what I pray most of all that we get out of this evening. Um, Now, still others, I guess, will be thinking, it is somewhere between irrelevant and dangerous to turn to an ancient book for advice on how to run 21st century relationships. I mean, that is just, that's just madness. It's undeniable what the Bible has taught, as we've just read it, is at odds with our culture. You're not going to go out into culture and find this view being propounded in the newspapers tomorrow. Two things, though, on that. Um, Firstly, the Bible is an equal opportunities offender. Uh, By by which I mean, uh, actually, the the Bible's teaching on marriage doesn't just offend secular Western culture. It offends every culture. Ephesians 5 is not a, a call to return to Victorian marriage values. In different ways, Ephesians 5 is just as offensive to Victorian attitudes about marriage as it is to modern secular attitudes. The call of Ephesians 5 is to a biblical view of marriage, and that at different points and in different ways and to different degrees will be different from every human culture's understanding of marriage. The Bible's an equal opportunities offender when it comes to marriage. Secondly, before we're too quick to dismiss the Bible out of hand because it doesn't fit with what our culture says, we ought to ask, well, uh, before our culture is held up as the gold standard against which we, we measure the Bible, has our culture got a healthy view and got it sorted when it comes to long-lasting relationships? Do you know the average length of time people have a current account relationship, stay with their bank, 17 years? The average marriage now lasts 11 and a half years. We are, as a culture, we have not got this sorted. I don't mean that to sound trite, um, but it, that is, that's very crazy. Actually, the studies they've done on happiness in marriage show that 60 years ago, people were happier, by and large, in marriage than they are today. That's, as I say, I'm not saying we need to go back to where we were 60 years ago. I'm just saying we should not be quite so quick to assume if what the Bible says doesn't fit with what our culture says, then the Bible must be ditched. Our culture is hugely confused, and it's full of pain and mess on this very issue. And because of that, we ought to just pause and listen to what the Bible says before we bin it out of hand. Okay, we're in Ephesians 5. As we've, uh, we've dived back into Ephesians last week after a little break, as we said, chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians are God's roadmap, God's roadmap are uh, The directions for a life that's full of freedom and rich in purpose. How to live in a way which is rich and free. Four to six, the roadmap. Chapters one to three, the engine. What gives us the power, the desire to go that way is what we've learned in chapters one to three about the gospel. God's free gift of salvation, of forgiveness and of adoption through Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, God's new life for us is a life full of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 518 said, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we had uh, four verbs that flowed out from it of what it looks like to be full of the Holy Spirit. And the last comes in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, why does he emphasize submission at this point? Well, I think it is because the, bio, the, the gospel, the message of Jesus is so radical, it's so revolutionary and it tears down so many barriers that existed between Jew and Gentile in the, in the ancient world in particular that it would be very easy to, to think, to assume, well, once you become a Christian, all of the structures disappear. And in church, there is no structure. Everything is ripped up. And, and Paul I say, yeah, the gospel is revolutionary, but it's not anarchy. And actually, the submission that he's talking about here is not that we all submit to one another equally. Actually, he'll teach that elsewhere. In Philippians 2, he'll say, you're to put the needs of other people ahead of yourself. Every one of us should do that. And in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 7.4, he says, in marriage you belong to one another. Not one of you belongs to the other, both of you, each of you belongs to the other. But that's not his point here. His point here is the radical gospel, the revolutionary gospel, it doesn't mean there are no orders or structures or hierarchy. And actually, part of being filled with the Spirit is submitting to the structures God has put in place. Now, you can see that, because in the verses that follow, he, never, he doesn't sort of flip it. He doesn't say, and husbands should submit to wives, and children should, uh, parents should submit to children, and uh, bosses should Im- submit to employees. His point here is, no, 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 there, are, there is a structure in the world that God has set, a, set up, and Christians are to, to live in that structure. Uh, it was the, the Champions League semi-finals this last week. For those of you who have been living under a rock, um, that's been going on. Uh, even if you know nothing about football, you probably felt like you had to pretend you did because it's all anybody was talking about this week. And it was unbelievable, quite literally. You could not have scripted it. It was two of the most exciting, dramatic, unscriptable semi-finals in football history. But the thing is, you can only have that kind of beautiful, unscripted drama because there are clear rules for the game. And there's a hierarchy with the referee holding authority that enables the game to be played. You can only have the beautiful game flourish where you've got structure for it. And the same is true in society. The authorities that God has set in place help us to flourish. There's nothing demeaning, there's nothing life-limiting about living under Christ's rule and enjoying the fact that God has put some structures in place. They enabled life to flourish. Okay, uh, with um, those introductions, let's uh, get into the detail of what he says. Now remember, this is not everything the Bible says about marriage. The title here is not everything you need to know about marriage. Paul's teaching one thing. He's getting really at the heart of it, though. Um, and just two points for you. Wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, and husbands love your wives as the church loves, as Christ loves the church. So verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. The command to wives is to submit. Uh, The the word means to... It means to recognize and live in accordance with a structure and authority. To recognize and live in accordance with a structure or an authority. It's paired, as you see um, in verse 33, with respect. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So Christian wives are not to belittle or usurp or undermine their husbands, but rather respect and support their leadership. Let's unpack that a bit. Now, firstly, note it's limited. It's a wife to her own husband. This is not a call to all women to submit to all men. And in all sorts of other areas of life, women can lead as CEOs in business, as head teachers, as prime ministers. We've got a female queen. The head of our state is a a woman. Okay, it's limited, and the reasoning is very important. The husband is described as head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. In other words, it doesn't say submit to your husband because men are just cleverer than women. It doesn't say that. It's not true. It doesn't say submit to your husband as long as you agree with him. That's not submission if you only do it when you agree. It doesn't say submit to him as long as he's bought you flowers within the last week. It's not a vending machine where he puts in uh, nice things and you pop out some submission and, and respect. Instead, the Bible calls on wives to submit to husbands, verse 22, as to the Lord. That is, Christian wives submit to their husbands because they recognize this is the way that God has set marriages up. That's it. And that in God's eyes, ultimately, the husband therefore bears responsibility for the marriage. Now, some people look at the word um, head in verse 23 and think, actually, it means source, like the head of a river, It's not really about authority, it's just saying the origin. Adam was made first, that's the point. It's true that the word for head here can mean source. It does in other other parts of the Bible. But that's not the way it's used in Ephesians. So in Ephesians 1.22, if you flick back, you read, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, that is Christ, to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So do you see, it's, there it's not about source at all, it's about them being placed under him, under his authority. And where the Bible talks about Christ and his relationship with the church and where Ephesians does, it's talking about authority. That's what the pattern is here. At this point, we need to realize the Bible just doesn't have the same utterly negative view that many of us do about submission, We think that if you say you've got to submit to that person, we're saying they're more valuable than you. They're wiser than you. They're more capable than you. They're better than you. But the Bible separates value from role. It teaches husbands and wives are equal in nature, in dignity, in value, and in worth. As humans, they're created in the image of God. Jesus died for both men and women. The Holy Spirit equally lives in every man and woman here who trusts in Christ. But they have different roles. Husbands are to lead and bear ultimate responsibility, not because we're better, but because that is the role God has called us to. Full stop. Let me teach you some theology. Uh, This is um, a couple of old people. Arius is on the left, and Arminius, with the magnificent forehead, is on the right. Now in the early church, in the first few hundred years of of the church, there was a massive debate about whether Jesus Christ was fully God. So Arius taught Jesus is amazing, Jesus is the saviour, Jesus is divine, but he's not divine quite in the same way that God the Father is. You know, after all, Jesus is sent, Jesus, he obeys. So the Son is not quite divine in exactly the same way that the Father is divine. Not quite equal with God. A sort of second tier deity, if you like. Athanasius led the biblical charge and said, no, that is absolute wicked nonsense. Jesus Christ is fully God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a trinity. And Son and Spirit are equally God with God the Father. And he understood that this was a very, very important thing to hold on to. Arius could not get his head around the fact that because the Son has a different role, the Son is sent, the Son then obeys the Father on earth and goes to the cross. He he couldn't see that the, the Son could be anything other than lesser, but he was wrong. And thankfully, people sided with uh, Athanasius. Actually, uh, one of the famous people who sided with Athanasius is the next slide. Uh, that is St. Nicholas, from whom we get Santa Claus. Um, and he is famous, actually, rather than from giving presents. Originally, it was for smacking um, Arius in a debate. Um, <laughs> it's not how we meant to do debates, but there we go. Um, he got quite angry at the way Arius was uh, disrespecting the Lord Jesus. Um, that's not how you should debate, but it is <laughs> it's quite something. Anyway, uh, enough. Um, why do I tell you that? 1 Corinthians and verse, uh, One Corinthians and chapter 11. And if you look at uh, verse three, it says this. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. See, there is an authority. God the Father is above Jesus Christ the Son in authority. And yet, Jesus, the Son, is fully God. Fully God. The fact that the Son is sent, the fact that the Son obeys does not make him less God. And the fact that wives have a different role does not make them lesser. It's not demeaning, it's not degrading. If we think it is, then we say to the Lord Jesus, your role is degrading and demeaning surely we can't say that. What does this mean in practice that uh, the wife submits to the husband? It doesn't mean that the husband makes all the decisions and never changes their mind in the light of the wife's wisdom and input. A husband who doesn't listen to his wife or change his mind in the light of what his wife says is not a biblical leader. He's an unbiblical idiot. That's just not what the Bible's teaching at this point. It doesn't mean the husband takes every decision and the husband drives every activity, but it does mean the husband takes ultimate responsibility for the marriage and should seek to lead the general direction of it. So marriage is not to be a power struggle with husband and wife trying to get the upper hand. Everyone loses in a war where the opponents share the trench. Instead, marriage is to be a dance where one leads and the other responds and the different roles enable the dance to work. And so wives, don't follow the cultural pattern of mocking and belittling your husband. You know, from Pepper Pig onwards, we, have, we live in a culture which mocks and despises men and seeks to, to denigrate the role of the father and the husband. Speak well of him and to him. Speak of him, and, in the way that is the man you want him to be. Speak to him in the way that you want him to be. Honor and esteem him. What this does mean, though, is that the ultimate question for, for girls when you're working out whether to pursue a relationship, the ultimate question is, is not, is he romantic enough for me? It's not, well, what will our children look like? You know? It's the ultimate question is, is this the man that I can respect and submit to for the rest of my life. That's ultimately what you're deciding when you decide to pursue a relationship to marriage. Is this the man I can submit to and respect for the rest of my life? Wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ. (coughs) Secondly, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Now the command to wives sounds very demanding and it sounds probably to some of us like a, a formula for an abusive relationship. But I think everything changes once you see The second part, what is demanded of husbands. And the husband's role is not abuse and exploitation. It is loving sacrifice. Paul teaches verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now it's interesting. It doesn't say wives submit, husbands lead. Wives submit, husbands love. Guys here often ask me, uh, "Look, I, I, what does it look like? To, how can I learn to lead this relationship?" The first thing, if you want to start to lead a relationship, Paul says, is love her. Number one, love her. That's what it looks like. And the command to love gets tough when Paul explains what love means. of his body. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Okay, what does that mean? Well, Jesus gave his life to serve us and died on the cross to save us. That's what it looks like. And he didn't come because we're such wonderful people, we deserved it. He didn't come because we knew we'd pay him back once he'd done that. He didn't come because we begged him, please come and save us. He did it because he has huge love for people like you and me. That's why Jesus did it. And that is the model for the Christian husband, self-generating, self-sacrificial love that pours itself out for the other. And it's a love that doesn't have to be earned or deserved. Now, Song of Songs teaches about the romantic love that every marriage should have, but Ephesians 5, this foundational text, focuses that the husband is to act for the spiritual benefit of the wife in loving sacrifice. The husband is to act for the spiritual benefit of the wife in loving sacrifice. Now I think actually that these verses can be a little bit misunderstood as it talks about um, Christ loved the church. Husbands as love wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives. Now, they, they, we can misunderstand what's going on here because I think we can, we can think that actually it's saying that there is, we, you need a husband to basically become holy. But actually, the verbs for cleansing and making holy are describing a one off action which Christ has completed. It's not teaching here. Christ begins the job of cleansing you from sin and making you holy, but you need a man to finish it. You need a husband. As if if, you, if you're single, then uh, you're lacking a vital part of your sanctification. Of course it doesn't mean that. His point is, the focus of Christ's love was to save us. And he did that. He washed you, you're clean. He's made you holy, set apart for God. So, as a husband, if you 're working out what does it mean to love my wife? Well, I mean a whole heap of things, but at the heart of it, at the core of it, look at what Jesus does for the church. His focus is to save the church for eternity, and so, the greatest priority for a husband ought to be well, the spiritual benefit of his wife, the spiritual growth okay, so firstly it 's um, seek the spiritual benefit of your wife, secondly sacrifice yourself to protect your wives. That's the other thing. Christ sacrifices himself and husbands ought to be willing to sacrifice themselves. Since 1852, in maritime shipping law, there has been a rule actually, women and children first when a ship goes down. And famously on the 14th of April 1912, as the Titanic sank, men from aristocrats to the boiler workers in the ship put the wives and children on and stepped back. Extraordinary, the, you know, forget the film, the real accounts, the men put the women and children on and they stepped back and let the, the lifeboats go, which is why so many more men died. Fast forward 100 years when we, we're not so clear that men should be loving sacrificial leaders in marriage and have got confused about the role of a man. The Costa Concordia, exactly 100 years later, January 2012, and the accounts are very different. Men using their greater physical strength to muscle through the women and children to get onto the lifeboats first. That's 21st century living, pure equality, survival of the fittest. Bible says something very different. God made men to sacrifice themselves to save others. That's what it means to be a man. Now, for us blokes, actually, I think the dramatic gesture is not the hardest part of laying down life. In one sense, much harder than taking a bullet for, for your wife, says someone who's never been shot, um, <laughs> is, uh, is the daily act of dying to yourself in the sense of dying to your desires, dying to your longing to, to have what you want. It might mean living where you don't want to live or working a job you really don't enjoy going out and actually doing something on a Saturday rather than vegging on the sofa in front of the sports because that's what's required to serve and love your wife. That's what's best for her. Not just doing what she wants, but what's best for her. And that's what Ephesians 5 requires, husbands to sacrifice themselves for their wives. Thirdly, Jesus takes the initiative, we're told here. He came and he cleansed the church. So husbands should initiate peacemaking. God didn't wait for us to turn back. He came and he died. Now sometimes it will be appropriate for the wife to apologize when you have an honest and lively exchange of opinions. Um, But a husband must never think it's her fault. I'm going back to the office until she apologizes. Husbands are to love wives like Christ loved the church, which means taking the initiative and sorting things out. Being willing to bear the cost myself even when I'm sure she's in the wrong. And so for for the men here, the ultimate question as you look at Ephesians 5 and you think about um, pursuing a relationship is, am I willing to put this person first in self-sacrificial love for the rest of my life? Am I willing to die to self to see her flourish? That's the question. Do you see, though, in Ephesians 5... Paul focuses on the duty of each spouse to the other and not what they should expect from the other. There's nothing about what you should get from the other, only about what you should give to the other. And when there are problems in a marriage, which there will always be if one of the spouses is a sinner, and uh, (laughs) I've yet to find the marriage where at least two of them aren't sinners. Um, When there are problems in a marriage, we're always tempted to think the problem is with the other person. She never shows me respect She nags me. I hate the way she speaks about me. She undermines every time I try to lead. She doesn't support the stuff I suggest. He doesn't love me. He loves his work much more than me. He doesn't invest in the marriage. He pays more attention to his phone than to what I say. Never takes the lead in sorting out problems. It's up to me to resolve every argument. And it's tempting when you're a friend and you hear those things. But to sympathize and to, to talk about how, you, how we can get them to change and focus on their unreasonable behavior. But Paul focuses not on what we can expect from the other person, but on our duty to them. And so if you're going to be a good friend to a married couple, then you need to gently turn things around. And when your married friends are complaining about their spouse, you need to say, look, I'm really sorry that she makes you feel like that, but you can only change you. We need to talk about you and how you're loving her because that's the only thing you can change. I need to add a caveat here. These verses, are, these verses are general teaching about marriage. They're not talking about what you do in the situation of abuse. If someone tells you they're being abused, then you need to act, come and talk to the church leadership. This is not saying tolerate abuse, okay? Okay? But it does say, focus on what your duties are, not on what your demands are. Verse 31 takes us back to Genesis two in the beginning of the Bible. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The uniting of an individual man and an individual woman so that they become one flesh in marriage is a complete mystery. How can that be? I mean, the day we married, all my great riches suddenly were not just mine. They, they had to be shared. They become ours, not mine. But as always in Ephesians, mystery is ultimately about Jesus. The mystery of that union in marriage points towards the fact that as you and I put our trust in Jesus Christ, his great riches, his status as perfect before God, his inheritance of the entire universe. Suddenly, that's not just his, it's ours. As we close, there are a few practical implications just to touch on. Now, firstly, I think it's undeniable that this passage has implications for how we think about debates about gay marriage. According to God's word here, the essence of marriage is the difference between a man and a woman that enables marriage to depict the relationship between Christ and his people the church now a marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman it can't do that it can be loving it can be romantic it can be faithful and it can be fulfilling but it can't depict the difference of Christ and the church Now I realize that raises very difficult issues um, for all of us and some people will react strongly against it. But to the Christians I would say this, you cannot expect to be a faithful follower of Jesus and always fit into the attitudes and values of the culture around you. Sometimes you'll be hated for the views you hold. Equally, if you're gonna be a faithful follower of Jesus, you need to make sure that you speak about issues where you differ with culture with kindness with respect and with dignity and in a way that shows love. But it does show that marriage needs to be a union of difference. And it matters that we hold on to God's truth here because marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church and we want that picture to tell the truth about Jesus. All marriages say something of Jesus and the church, you can't help but do that because the Bible says marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church, so every marriage is a picture. The question is whether it tells the truth and how clear that picture is. Where a wife resents her husband and the call to submit, that tells the world that Jesus is not a good leader worthy of your submission. Where a husband is harsh and unloving or just passive and, and disengaged, it tells the, the world that Jesus is a brutal tyrant or he doesn't care about his people. It matters. The last thing though, to say is that there will be no marriage in heaven. Uh, Jesus teaches that explicitly as he uh, debates with the Sadducees in matthew 2230. No marriage in heaven. why does that matter? Because heaven is the place of pure, deep, unrelenting, eternal joy, bliss, happiness, paradise. And there's no marriage there. Because marriage is not ultimate. It's just a picture. The reality is Christ. This is a picture of Yosemite. It is a stunning picture of a half dome at sunset. It's absolutely magnificent. Looking at that picture makes me smile. I love looking at it but it's nothing like as good as being there for real. And not having the picture, well, I'd rather have the picture. I love that beautiful picture. But not having the picture doesn't matter so much if I live there or I know I'm going to live there. Marriage does not meet your fundamental need for intimacy or to be loved and known. Only God can do that. And the Bible will end with a wedding. Human history will end with a wedding that involves you if you trust in Christ. It'll be a stunning, joyous, dazzling wedding with a feast that we're told in Isaiah 25 has the finest vintage wines and the choicest cuts of meat and presumably a good vegetarian option as well if that's your thing. But it's, and this is the moment when life will truly begin for all of us. But it will not be a marriage to your ideal human partner. It's when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to bring us into his paradise kingdom. And that actually is what your soul really longs for. Now, all the other good things we need and want and desire, the only thing that will truly fulfill you is to be in union with Christ, that relationship with God that you were created for, surrounded by your church family, in union with Christ and surrounded by his people. That's what you were designed for. And on that first day of eternity, as you enjoy the reality Whether you had the picture for a few decades here on earth will matter a whole lot less than it does right now. Marriage is not in heaven. And marriage is not heaven. That's still to come for all of us. We get a little foretaste of the wedding banquet to come when Jesus marries the church and we enter paradise forever in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a meal that looks back to Jesus' death on the cross, but it's also a meal that looks forward and anticipates that great heavenly banquet to come, when you and I will be with him forever.